You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast this week is Dario Fabri. Uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you will recognize that name. Dario joined us just around this time last July. Uh, he's a journalist, scientific advisor, and American coordinator at Limes, which is an Italian journal on geopolitics. Um, that's spelled Limes, uh, but it's pronounced Limes. If you are an Italian speaker, Limes does great work. You can check them out online. Um, you can also use your Google Translate feature if you want. I write for them every once in a while as well. Um, thanks so much for Dario for coming on. We had a great conversation about Italy's perspective on a number of different issues um, and also on Italy's challenges going forward here in a post-pandemic world. Man, it feels good to say post-pandemic world, doesn't it? Hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, take good care of each other and we'll see you out there. Cheers. Dario, welcome back to the podcast. It has been almost exactly a year since you came on the show. It's nice to have you back. True. Thank you for having me back. It's it's a great pleasure being here with you, Jacob. Hey, Dario, obviously you're an Italian, so I'm going to ask you some questions about Italian geopolitics. But before we mm-hmm. get there, um, I know that you're preparing for media interviews for this, uh, this Biden-Putin-Russia-US summit in Geneva. I've been doing the same. Um, so what's on top of your mind? Do you think it's the big deal that everybody's making it out to be? Or, or do you think that U.S.-Russia relations are just stuck for the foreseeable future? I'd be curious to know what the, what the, the buzz is in Rome on this meeting. Well, I don't know what the buzz is. Well, the buzz is in Rome. Curious that uh, this bilateral meeting is very important. Every meeting for that reason, especially uh, for journalists, is considered very important. Um, everything's supposed to change when two leaders meet. Um, I don't actually uh, buy this this whole this whole hype around uh, this this special bilateral meeting, but I, I might be mistaken. To me, there's uh, we're just uh, witnessing uh, the uh, attempt by Biden by the U.S. to uh, to calm the situation down, especially after. Uh, a few months where the the relationship between Russia and U.S. has been has been uh, dropping uh, pretty quickly, and now I think not to pursue a war. Of course, uh, Washington is just trying to calm things down here with uh, with Russia. Uh, but I, I do not think that this meeting or any other meeting in the foreseeable future will will actually change the relationship for real. What could possibly change this relationship is the perception that the U.S. will have about China. I'll be more specific here. Uh, To me, the U.S. keeps containing simultaneously China and Russia without opening up to Russia uh, as to use Russia against China, something like the opposite of what uh, did in 1971 when, of course, the U.S. opened up to China to use it against the Soviet Union. Now it's not doing the same because I think for two reasons. The first, the U.S. believes that if it were to open up to to open up to Russia, Russia would be free to move around Europe, meaning would be free to uh, to strike uh, agreements with Germany or France for that matter. If that would complicate the whole scenario in Europe for the U.S. 
Secondly, the U.S. is not opening up to Russia, no matter what the White House says, whether it is uh, Obama, uh, Trump, or Biden for that reason, just because China is not considered that dangerous. Well, of course, China is dangerous, but it's not as dangerous as being able to uh, uh, to uh, um, being uh, the uh, the foe that can really defeat the U.S. It's not China, of course, with its fleet that uh, that is in front of the Atlantic coast or the Pacific coast. It's the U.S. that has been, of course, conducting freedom of navigation operations and in China's seas. And it's not, of course, China that uh, is about to uh, contain the U.S. in North America. It's just the other way around with the U.S. trying to contain uh, China in the, uh, in, in the Asia Pacific. So to me, if China were to uh, become that dangerous, the U.S. would be uh, forced to open up the Russia to risk uh, the scenario that I just envisioned for Europe, if, you, if the U.S. were to open up the Russia. But for the time being, that it's not happening for those two reasons. Uh, Russia being able to strike agreements with main European powers, especially Germany and France, and China being considered dangerous, but not that dangerous uh, in this very moment uh, in Washington. How do you see the, the U.S., Russia, and China relations? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I was gonna, I was gonna get to that question. Of course, the podcast, but let's do it now. I, I wasn't sure while you were talking whether you were gonna say that it was the U.S. didn't think uh, China was dangerous or Russia didn't think China was dangerous. And I, I think what I would say to you is, um, yeah, I don't think that the U.S. is gonna be able to pull off that reverse Nixon maneuver and use Russia against China the way that it used China against Russia in the context of the Cold War. But I think that's primarily because Russia is not interested. Um, I don't think Russia is is willing to play that game uh, and really is thinking more of, of establishing some kind of international, I don't want to say agreement, but some kind of status quo where Russia gets its own sphere of influence and is willing to let China have its sphere of influence and the U.S. needs to stop meddling. I think that's perhaps the Russian perspective. I think you also might underestimate the extent to which um, there are factions in the U.S. foreign policy establishment who view China as a threat. Um, I don't think it's by any means a monolithic opinion, and I don't think um, that it is necessarily calling the shots right now. Um, but there is a serious groundswell of not just China is a threat sentiment, but anti-China sentiment in the United States, and it is driving policy. And you're you're watching it play out, I think, with the Biden administration because um, they are being just as tough, if not tougher, I would argue, on on China. Um, than the Trump administration. I also think uh, you know the other aspect here is that um, the Biden administration cares a lot about democratic principles and ideals and about all those sorts of optics. And Biden has gone after Putin and gone after Russia as sort of representing an assault on democratic principles. I don't think that's too far to say. Um, and I don't see any way to bridge. I don't see any way that the U.S. and Russia are going to bridge that ideological divide because Russia thinks that that's insulting and the United States thinks that Russia is insulting. And so what? They'll have a meeting and they'll sit in the same room. But I think that's probably where it ends. Well, I'm not saying that, of course, um, China is not perceived as a threat in the U.S. Uh, I think that if China were perceived as a mortal threat to the U.S., 
the U.S. would be forced to open up to Russia, at least would be forced to uh, try to open up to Russia. To me, Russia, and here I disagree with you, uh, to me, Russia would be more than willing uh, to help, of course, for its own sake, to help the U.S. against China. Uh, here, to me, it's a matter of uh, uh, strategic grammar, so to speak. If you, if you were to choose between two potential hegemons, here, U.S. and China, if you were Russia, I think you'd be forced to choose the one that lies far away from you. Let's not forget here that China and Russia share a long border, a border which is underpopulated on the Russian front and, of course, overpopulated on the China's front. Uh, if Russia were to help China against the U.S., and let's just for a second here imagine that China were able to defeat the U.S., or at least were able to uh, to replace the U.S. as the uh, global, the only global superpower. Uh, in that in that scenario, Russia would face a mortal enemy just beyond the border, which is way worse than having a mortal enemy in Alaska. Uh, especially considering how important hydrocarbons are for, for Russia, especially uh, in that part of the Russian territory. So to me, Russia would be willing to help the U.S. Of course, it would, would want something in return. And that something in return would be, of course, uh, uh, scaling down on the U.S. part the tensions in Eastern Europe. Something that uh, U.S. is not is not willing to concede, especially not now. So I think that Russia, I'm not saying that of course would run to uh, to accept uh, uh, the U.S. offer, but it would be willing to uh, to act against China. To me, to Russia, and of course here I might be mistaken again. To me, Russia considers China more dangerous than the U.S for terrestrial reasons, for uh, border disputes. And uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure that Russia wouldn't be part of the game, as you called it. I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, that is not what I've heard um, and not what I've thought, but um, that's exactly why I like having these podcasts because it's nice to have interesting <laughs> opinions. You do. <laughs> um, I, I will say, though, I mean, you, uh, the way you framed it was that, uh, you know, better to have an enemy in Alaska than to have one on your border, the Russian border. Um, I would think that the view from Moscow is that the enemy is in Belarus and is in Ukraine and that you know, NATO represents the U.S. front there and that that is more disturbing um, to the center of power of, of Russia than something far away that they're going to have to deal with in China in the long run. But I, I do think you're right, though, that Russia... Um, it's going to have to deal with China one way or another. It's it's it's, True, it's a much but, more but here, pressing and present issue. But here, Jacob, we're talking about empires. The empires tend to have a very long memory, and they tend to look at the future, especially in the long run. What I mean here is, yeah, you're right. In Belarus, in Ukraine, even Georgia, the U.S. is the enemy for first. Uh, along with Poland and Romania, but of course the U.S. is the main enemy for Russia in, the, in, in those territories. But still, the U.S. does not lie in Europe. One day, as the Russians put it, the U.S. won't be able to be as dangerous and threatening in Europe as it is today. China will lie where it is 
for the foreseeable future for maybe for centuries, meaning that China will stay put just below the border for, for Russia. So I think here it's a matter for Russia of having something in return from the U.S. If the U.S. were to offer something real in Eastern Europe, uh, Russia would help against China. But to me, and I, and I, I don't know what, what, do you, what you think about this, to me, as I said, the U.S. fears that might lose control of what France or Germany do vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And that, that is considered something that the U.S. doesn't want to think about, uh, or at least doesn't want to, to deal with having, I mean, France or Germany striking deals with Russia or just acting as if Russia uh, were uh, an ally instead of an enemy. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask, you, you brought up France and Germany, and Germany obviously dependent on Russian energy. Um, where does Italy fit in there? Does Italy have any opinions about, about Russia's relations with um, Europe going forward? Does it feel sure. uncomfortable about about maybe Germany and France dealing on more stable terms with Russia, or is it far enough away that you don't care? How do you how do you uh, articulate that position? Well, Italy always had a um, let's say uh, a good relationship with Russia, especially or even during the Cold War when, of course, Russia was called the Soviet Union uh, for two reasons. Uh, first reason. Russia is very far away from Italy. So Italy never really feared Russia, or at least hasn't feared Russia as much as, of course, Poland or Romania, or even the UK uh, feared and, and fear Russia. The second reason is, of course, we're dependent for energy, uh, mostly on Russia. And we've been dependent on Russia for many decades now, energy-wise. So Italy, has never really uh, considered Russia as an enemy, even during the Cold War. And I believe that when something is strategic, it's being held throughout the years by different parties. When different parties uh, pursue uh, same, the same foreign policy means that that very issue is strategic. And here in Italy, for a very long time, it was the left, of course, the Communist Party that was close to Russia for ideological reasons, apparently. And nowadays is the right uh, being close to Russia, again, for ideological reasons, apparently. But when ideological reasons move and change, to me, means that there is a strategic level underneath all, all of this. So Italy never really, uh, has never really feared Russia. But when Italy looks at Germany with the Nord Stream 2 and stuff like that and all the, uh, the, the ties that bind uh, sort of at least Russia and Germany together, Italy is not, is not, that, is not that worried, not at all. Uh, even France, I think, is not that worried about what Germany does with Russia. Uh, to Italy, the U.S. should open up to Russia. We should have a normal relationship with Russia and so forth. Let's, let's also consider here that Italy doesn't really believe in great powers relationships. Uh, to Italy, it's only a matter of economy, trade, uh, energy, uh, just as it happens in Germany, more or less. Let's, let's say this way. Let's call it this way. So 
I wouldn't uh, pretend something of a um, very geopolitical approach when it comes to Italy, especially because here, economy, trade, and energy, as I said, are the most important issues, more important than any other geopolitical issues that we might consider. Yeah, that's that's well said. But then I'll I'll throw it back at you. Um, and this gets to the China point that we were talking about. I mean, just a few years ago, Italy made waves because they signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and I remember being with you at, at the Lima's conference yeah. right after that happened. Some people were upset and some people were surprised. Um, and it seems that um, you were new... very calm. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I, I well, because I don't I don't I think that Belt and Road is more of a PR stunt than it is anything else. But I, at least one person came up to me and said it could be the end of the Italian U.S. relationship at the end of NATO. And I, I think I wow. told them to calm, calm down a little bit. Um, but it seems that Italy has reversed itself. It seems that Mario Draghi is uh, exactly. um, is very skeptical of China, not just skeptical of China now, but is aligning Italy, um, can we say, against China? Can we say that Italy is part of this European Union push to um, redefine its relationship with China in a more antagonistic way and get closer to the United States? Um, yeah, how do you see can, that situation evolving? We can surely say that. To quote a very famous movie, something has changed um, <laughs> in the past few months here. Let's consider Italy's situation, uh, Italy's condition. Mario Draghi has been chosen, of course, has not been elected, has been chosen to pursue two different goals, two goals that are different, but, but uh, intertwined. Uh, the first goal is to uh, have the so-called European funds come, uh, come to Italy. Draghi is basically saying, trust me, I will be the one uh, managing those funds. I will, I will be the one uh, using those funds, of course, uh, on behalf of Italy, but you can trust me, the, uh, the money will be uh, rightly spent. Um, and of course, Draghi is talking to, to Germany. Yeah, of course, those funds are called European, but as Germany, there's guaranteeing for Italy and other countries with, a, with its uh, uh, AAA in front of the markets to have the European Commission um, of course, creating uh, its own bonds to uh, uh, to have those funds coming. On the other front, the other goal that uh, Draghi is pursuing here is telling the U.S. that also the U.S. should trust Italy. Yeah, of course, we're getting deeper into Germany's sphere of influence. Uh, the so-called EU uh, next generation um something that is uh, very uh, uh, tied to Germany, just for the reasons that I that I that I explained before. But also, Italy is telling the U.S. we just want the money. We do not want to get deeper for real into Germany's sphere of influence. So Draghi is telling the U.S. please trust us, and also trust us when it comes to Russia and China. Um, a month ago, here, um, an alleged spy, Italian spy, uh, a member of Italy's Navy, has been arrested uh, and has been charged with 
spying for Russia. Uh, that very fact uh, has been uh, widely publicized on uh, Italian media, as if uh, our government was telling everyone that we won't accept and tolerate Russia's interference in our affairs, something that sounded pretty much as a message to the U.S., just as much as what Draghi said a couple of days ago, when he said that we're reviewing our signing of the memorandum of the Belt of Road Initiative. So here we have a government that, in a very difficult condition and situation for a country, Italy, of course, will, will be in default next year if those uh, so-called European funds uh, were in common. Uh, in a very difficult situation, Draghi is trying to, uh, uh, to uh, having the Germans trust us and having the Americans trust us when it comes to uh, spending the money for, for the Germans, when it comes to our relationship with China and partly Russia when it comes to the U.S., yeah, I yeah. wanna I wanna highlight what you just said there because I think that listeners could it, it could just breeze you by and you could miss the importance of the statement. But you said that you know Italy could be in default next year if these EU next generation funds, which is the EU pooling its resources together uh, to loan money to EU states in need after the COVID nineteen pandemic to help rebuild, mm -hmm. um, if Italy doesn't get those funds. Um, and one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think Italy's biggest challenge is, whether that's politically, you know, I'll let you answer that question however you want, but what is Italy's biggest challenge post-COVID? And I wonder if if that is the answer right there. Um, is it about Italy really needing the European Union to get together and get this next generation program off the ground because Italy is facing uh, major economic problems if it isn't? Is that the biggest challenge or is there something else that should be on our radar when thinking about how Italy's um, approaching recovery from COVID-19? Well, that's the biggest challenge uh, in the um, in the short run, for sure. Uh, if you were to consider this very moment, that is the challenge overall. Um, as I said, Italy would pretty much be in default if, if those funds weren't coming. Um, just, just because of our debt, just because of the slow recovery, just because of, of, of our economy, uh, of what our economy has been for the past 20 years, I'd say. But if you were to look at the, at the long run, if you were to look at the future, of course, Italy's got many other challenges. The first challenge is, of course, uh, demography. Italy's population has been declining. Our uh, median average uh, uh, age is very high, uh, the highest in the world alongside Japan. And uh, Italy uh, is supposed to deal with those challenges, especially demography and economy. And also Italy's got other challenges facing. Uh, being being uh, at the center of the uh, Mediterranean Sea, Italy has been kind of surrounded by uh, other powers that has been eroding our uh, sphere of influence in the, in the Mediterranean or in Libya, but also in the Balkans. And those powers are mainly Turkey and Russia. So I'd say that Italy's challenges are, are uh, several, and uh, um, some of those challenges are very important uh, 
I think that those challenges can be easily defined as uh, as mortal if they weren't uh, managed properly, and it's uh, it's it's no easy task. Mm-hmm. How do you what what is your perspective on how? things have changed inside the European Union, if they've changed at all, um, after the COVID-19 pandemic? Do you see the EU as a stronger entity potentially coming out of the pandemic? Um, you mentioned the the importance of EU funds to help the Italian economy. Does that maybe put Italy at odds with countries like Hungary or Poland, which have been gumming up some of the EU bur- bureaucracy and I think delaying the arrival of some mm-hmm. of those funds with their own concerns? Um, do you I- feel more confident in the EU? Do you feel like the EU is going to come together here? Or do you feel this is just another episode where the EU is going to fall short? Uh, I don't know if it's going to fall short. I surely not hope that uh, this will be the case, just for all the things that we just said. Mm-hmm. I think that we're witnessing here something different coming from Germany. Because the EU is no power, is, is not a subject, as we all know. But uh, uh, European countries are. And uh, unlike what happened, uh, let's say, 10 years ago, uh, Germany has decided that they had to, uh, that had to save the Eurozone and that had to, uh, uh, to being at the, at, at, at the center of the saving. Meaning, as I said before, that Germany is kind of guaranteeing for other countries in front of the markets with AAA. Uh, meaning that uh, unlike what, what it did 10 years ago when Germany was all, it's all your fault, you should pay your own debts, you should uh, care about yourself, you shouldn't ask for any help and stuff like that. Nowadays, we have Germany being much more helpful and more willing to help. Uh, that's why I say that uh, here we're witnessing a different phase of Germany's history. Maybe it won't last long. Maybe Germany will go back to what it was uh, 10 years ago or even five years ago. But that's something that is, that is happening right before our eyes. And that's the reason why some other countries, such as the Netherlands, but also Austria, Finland, they're also skeptical of those funds, not only because they think, partly they're, they're even right, that countries such as Italy or Spain or Greece, they won't be able to spend those funds in the right manner. They won't be able to, uh, to spend those funds efficiently. That's just, part of, just, just uh, part of the truth. On the other hand, they're also, especially the Netherlands and Austria, uh, they're also skeptical of what Germany will will want to do in the future. It's like if they're they're asking themselves, okay, now Germany's saving the eurozone, it's putting for real itself at the center of the continent and the future of the EU. What's next? Let's remember here that strategy for the Dutch or for 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 the Austrians. Uh, has always been not being uh, annexed to Germany. And if they see Germany trying to morph into something else, any movement coming from Germany kind of uh, scares those countries. Uh, 
that's the main uh, event. That that's that's the main fact that that they were witnessing here in Europe, especially inside the EU, at least to me. Is it fair to say that? So we I asked you about Italy's biggest challenge. Is it fair to say that? Um, the EU's biggest challenge is getting some of those countries to deal with the fact that Germany um, is asserting a more active role, or is are there other problems that you think are more serious for for the European Union going forward from here? Well, that that's the main problem right now. But of course, there are other problems that have been plaguing the EU since since forever. I'd say, meaning that uh, the EU is not is not a nation, doesn't have a government, and more importantly, the countries that make up the EU are different. They have different interests. They, they, they see the world in a different way and, and so forth. And uh, there's no way to me to uh, create a nation on just, uh, just because we say so. Uh, nations historically have been created through violence. Um, all nations have been created through revolutions, wars, and there's always a... Uh, a specific group that uh, through revolutions or wars uh, tends to dominate the other groups. And after uh, it has achieved such a goal, it gets those groups into the nation. And after some, some decades or even centuries, what happened uh, before it gets, gets uh, forgotten and, and the world part of a nation. But nations, as I said, they stem from violence. Unfortunately, humans do not know any other, um, no, no other means to, to create a nation. And in Europe, unless we want the, uh, the, the Third World War, no nation will be created in, in, in the next few years. So those are the endemic problems that, always, that have been always plaguing uh, uh, the EU. And uh, alongside, now we have those countries... Um, the ones that we mentioned, but even the U.S. to me, trying to understand what Germany's next move will be. And Germany, to me, doesn't really know what to do. Uh, Germany's pretty much uh, content and satisfied with what, what it is, but it understands that it won't last forever. Uh, Germany's been an economical superpower for such a long time kind of uh, avoiding any responsibility, any major responsibility connected to its role, um, especially when it comes to dealing with Russia or to dealing with China or even dealing with, with the U.S. Or, or the U.K. For that, for that matter. I believe that the Germans understand that the future will be different. They will have to take responsibilities. The problem here is understanding what kind of responsibilities Germany is willing to, to take in the future. And as I said, Germans don't really know. They're still trying to understand, but uh, they're not sure of which path, which path to follow uh, for, the, for the next few years. Yes, and I think in some sense they're scared of the responsibilities, as is everyone else, because the last time the Germans undertook responsibilities to themselves, it wasn't a very pleasant experience for most people. Um, you haven't really mentioned France at all, um, and I sort of associate you, you were the first person who really helped me realize that France was a much stronger player potentially in the long term in Europe than I had really understood um, a couple of years ago when we were at Lima. Mm -hmm. So where, where does France fit in here? Is France balancing Germany? Is France just sort of all on board with Germany and happy to help Germany play that bigger role? Where, where do you see France fitting in 
um, with these changes that you talked about? I think France is biding its time. Um, France's economy is pretty much in dire straits. Um, it's not that far away from, from Italy's economy. So for now, France needs to stay uh, very close to Germany. Doesn't want Germany to go to go back to austerity, to go back to fiscal conservatism, uh, for the time being at least. But when we look at the long run, when we look at the future, uh, France has got its own plans. France believes it will be the most important country in Europe, uh, demography-wise, and France uh, understands that that. Uh, will have the nuclear power and uh, a strong military and so forth. So I think France is still biding its time, even when it comes to Germany. The problem during this time is that France needs to deal with its own internal issues. Hmm. Uh, France's president is very different from, from the U.S. president. It's very different in being almost a king or a queen if in the future they will have a woman as a president. Uh, meaning that if the U.S. president, if the American president doesn't really have strong powers, uh, the French uh, 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 president has got very strong powers and he can really carve uh, the destiny or the future for its own nation and now Macron understands that France needs to uh, uh, to assimilate uh, foreigners. Those foreigners, especially Muslims, that have been living in France for many decades now. And Macron also understands that assimilating uh, second, third generations of Muslims in France kind of requires a violent approach, violent and a culturally violent approach, meaning that as Macron is trying to do, uh, is trying to, uh, to create, as, as they call them, national imams, imams uh, being uh, uh, educated and instructed in France, and also they're trying to control uh, even more uh, mosques and uh, and uh, uh, the movements of those considered uh, uh, dangerous Muslims by the the, the France uh, by 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 France's public and so forth. So I think that uh, for the next few years, France will will be trying to deal with those issues, those internal issues, because it's true. Maybe France in the future will be demographically the most important country in Europe. But he needs to assimilate third, fourth, even fourth generations that it's got on its own territory. Otherwise, he won't be able to look beyond its own borders if, if even in 10 or 20 years, will be forced to, to look inside of itself. Yeah, it's, it's funny the way history repeats itself. Um, I'm, I'm thinking in particular, this is one of the only cases in which my arcane knowledge of European Jewish history actually helps and is relevant because, I mean, when Napoleon was trying to emancipate the Jews back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, I forget the exact phrase, but it was it was some version of, you know, to the Jews, everything as Frenchmen, as individuals, but nothing as a nation. The idea being that you couldn't have um, people inside, well, then his empire, 
um, who were not uh, devoted to the state, but that they had all individual rights and that they were united in their um, Frenchness as individuals. And you can see very clearly that Macron is dealing with a similar sort of thing. He has a population or a significant faction of the population that has not been integrated for a lot of different reasons we don't have to go into here. And he's trying to say the same thing to them. You can have all the rights the French people can have, but you cannot then um, assert your, I don't know, your religion, your culture on what France is. It's that everybody gets these same rights. And if you want to do these things in the private of your own home, that's fine. But once you go out into the public sphere, it's this radical form of French secularism where everybody has to be French. I probably bastardized that a little bit, but I, I think that's close enough to what the, the French thinking has been on that it now is, for yes. centuries. In, and to me, even it's even more than an integration. You said integrated. Uh, here, it's a matter of assimilating those those people. They're fairly integrated to, to some extent, but they're not assimilated. I mean, there's what what I mean here is assimilation means that, that they cut any tie with their own ancestral uh, countries, that they perceive themselves only as French. And no matter what, what their religion is and no matter what their history and roots are. And that's something that, for example, the U.S. For, for a very long time has been able to do with, especially with immigrants coming from Europe, but that's something that France has not been able to do at all with uh, immigrants coming from, from former colonies, especially if they were uh, Muslims. And that's the biggest issue, the most important issue in France uh, today, and I think it will be for, for many years uh, to come. Yes, uh, the U.S. has done a good job over time. If you look at, at the largest, at sort of from the highest altitude, it has done a good job. But to your point in practice, um, it's it's been difficult. I mean, you know, when there was surges of Chinese immigration in the late 1800s, the first U.S. reactions to that uh, were not so great. We can talk about Japanese internment. We can talk about the way, um, you know, African Americans in the United States. There are still huge disparities there, and we've seen that come up in recent U.S. politics. So it's it's certainly not perfect. Um, but I I think you're right that that is the sort of thing France is going to have to deal with. Um, and it's not something that France has had to deal with in a long time. And in past episodes of French history, when it's had to deal with it, it's it's been very disruptive. Um, Dario, I know you got to go. Before we let you go, though, um, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I, I don't know <laughs> if you know anything about this, but I've been thinking a lot more about Ethiopia these days. And when you have an Italian geopolitical thinker on the podcast, it seems right to ask if you have any, do you have any thoughts or opinions on what's going on in Ethiopia with Abiy Ahmed and and I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. We don't have to go into all of it, but I just wondered based on Italy's, you know, historical intervention um, in Ethiopia in the 20th mm -hmm. century, um, is that one of the challenges that you would allude to on Italy's set of strategic challenges or is that sort of further afield and it's more about Turkey and Libya and things closer to home? Unfortunately, especially when it comes to the Horn of Africa, Italy has been losing and I would even say that uh, that has lose that has lost. I'm sorry. Uh, any real influence in that part of the world? Um, yeah, there's still some some uh, um, memory of what Italy did uh, back then and in, in, in the Horn of Africa. But but now we're lagging far behind of those countries that you just mentioned, especially Turkey. Um, if you considered how uh, difficult it has been for Italy 
to have a voice on, on what's going on in Ethiopia, you, you definitely understand. Uh, to us, for example, that part of the world is just something that, 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 that we, we, we watch on television and for a very short time. We, we don't we not really understand that there is a strong historical tie with the, the Ethiopian and that part of Africa and that we should uh, look more into. Um, and that reflects on our action there. Uh, in Djibouti, for example, Italy's got its own base, but the Italian public doesn't really know about this and doesn't really care about this. Uh, and as I, as I mentioned, Turkey, not only in Ethiopia and in the Horn of Africa, but even Northern Africa in the Balkans is now a real threat for Italy and, and, and something that, that really worries uh, the Italian government. And now we have basically Turkey confining with Italy and Libya, just uh, on the other side of the sea. And we have Turkey uh, um, increasing its own influence in Albania and the rest of the Balkans. Uh, and the Balkans has always, has always been, have always been a part of the world where Italy's influence was pretty strong. So it's not only a matter of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, but also Northern Africa and Balkans when it comes to Italy's past being forgotten or Italy's influence uh, being waning for such a long time. And Turkey is the main, is the main threat really in, in, in those territories, in the Balkans and even in Libya, especially in Libya. Um, we can fairly say that Turkey now confines with Italy, borders Italy when it comes to, to Libya. They're just on the other side of the, the sea. And Turkey was is a very difficult animal, is a very difficult power to deal with, just because Turkey's got uh, a, an imperial uh, mindset and uh, doesn't really have the means, at least not for now, to pursue its own goals, or even more importantly, to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to get those goals. But uh, it seems that Turkey does know what to do, uh, something that Italy does does not know. So, for example, to understand, and I and I wrap this up, to understand what Italy would like for the U.S. to do, Italy would like for the U.S. to intervene in Libya maybe indirectly against Turkey, something that of course won't happen in, in any future that I can envision. <laughs> and that uh, uh, I think more than anything kind of uh, provides you with the uh, inability of Italy of being present and influent in those, those territories and those parts of the world, uh, in Africa, in the Balkans, and in any other uh, area that uh, that is supposed to be very important for Italy. Yes, which sort of brings us back where we started, uh, because if what you're concerned about is Turkey and you're a European power, uh, Russia is an awfully good friend to have. But we'll have to leave it there and pick it up next time from there. Dario, sure. thank you so much for your Whenever time. You it was want. great talking to you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Bye, Jacob. If you haven't signed up for our free newsletter at perchperspective.com, what are you waiting for? Please check out the website. Uh, we put out a nice weekly summation of what's going on in the world. You can also find more information on our website about the geopolitical consulting services 
that we offer clients. If you're unsure about whether you could use those consulting services, aren't sure whether you need help when it comes to geopolitical risk, why not err on the side of caution? Send us an email at info at perchperspectives.com. Uh, we're happy to set up an introductory phone call and talk about what we can do for you. You'd probably be surprised at the way geopolitics is affecting what you're doing, especially in today's multipolar and competitive world. Second of all, um, if you need more perch in your life and you're not interested in a full-on consulting uh, arrangement, um, you should check out latampolitik.com. That's L-A-T-A-M-P-O-L-I-T-I-K.com. Uh, that's our collaboration uh, with Visual Politic, which is a YouTube channel that has millions of subscribers and viewers around the world. Um, three times a week, it gives you an in-depth look at the geopolitics of Latin America, which I think is a really underserved area when it comes to reporting and when it comes to analysis. Uh, I've been particularly proud of how at LATAM Politic, we've done some great work on what's been happening in Peru lately. Uh, some major elections coming up in Peru. Uh, there was an attack by the Shining Path last week, um, a really grisly attack, which says disturbing things about Peru's future. And honestly, there is nobody either in the English language or, or in the Spanish language, I think, that is taking this approach towards Latin America geopolitics. So for the price of a cup of coffee, albeit a fancy cup of coffee every month or a beer a month, whatever you want to say it as, you know, five bucks a month gets you three of those geopolitical updates on Latin America week. Feel free to check it out or sign up for the free trial. Uh, last but not least, um, if you like this podcast and you're not interested in all the other stuff, uh, there's one favor you can do for me, or really two favors, I guess I should say. First, whatever platform you're listening to this podcast on, leave us a review or leave us a rating. It's a really small thing. It takes five seconds out of your day, but it's immensely helpful to us. And if you really like the podcast, consider sharing us with your friend, uh, with your uncle, uh, with anybody else that you think might be interested in this content. Uh, the best support you can give us is a referral or a recommendation to somebody else who might be interested in the type of content that we're doing. Also helps us to keep doing this podcast, to keep it free, to make sure that it doesn't get clogged up with a bunch of ads. Uh, the more that we can grow that listener base uh, and funnel attention towards the podcast and to Perch, uh, the more content we can put out and the more we can make sure that that content stays free and ad, and more importantly for me, ad-free. 